Welcome to the Good Intent, Good Impact podcast, where every week we explore different concepts that help to dismantle white supremacy in American society. And in this episode, we're going to discuss white tears as weapons and talk about how white fragility, white guilt, white complacency, and white rage derail our efforts to create more inclusive and equitable environments for the places where we live and work. Um, and today I want to start with a personal example of something I recently experienced that's in this realm. Um, if you've been on the new audio app Clubhouse, um, then you know, you know, it's a space where people can talk about pretty much whatever they want. Um, and it's an audio only app. Um, and so you can really only hear people's voices. Um, and you go in and you have dialogue about different things. Um, and so one day I was on Clubhouse, I went into this room about victimhood. Um, and there are some people in our country who feel as though people like myself who try to fight against systemic oppression um, are really just playing into a victimhood narrative. Um, and that we need to take personal responsibility for the decisions that we make um, and stop blaming everything that happens to us in our lot in life on oppressive systems. Um, and that, that by doing that, um, we're leaning into this pace of victimhood of always being somebody's victim. And so I sat in this room for a while, just trying to listen and understand the perspective of what some of these folks who feel this way were trying to say. Um, and this one white woman came into the room um, and she was in that camp, if you will. Um, she expressed that, you know, she's had some bad things happen to her over the years, um, but she takes, you know, responsibility and she doesn't let those things stop her from being able to move forward and progress in a, in a positive and productive way. And that she didn't understand why other people, particularly black and brown people, because the conversation, um, you know, had turned to a conversation on race and ethnicity, um, couldn't do the same. Um, and so when I got on stage, at, at this point, there were a lot of things that I needed to say because there were a lot of problematic narratives going on in this room. Um, but after I kind of went through most of what I wanted to say, I actually spoke to this woman directly. And I said to her, you know, for someone who leans into personal responsibility in the way that you do, and with the personal narrative that she shared about a mistake that she made that led to a lifelong consequence for her, I said, you know, you may want to be more careful about your strategy and how you show up in these rooms. Because as much as you want people to feel empathy for you and the situation that you went through, which many of us did, myself included, um, I empathize with what happened to her. Um, the experience she went through, I would not wish on anyone. Um, but I said to her, as much as you want people to empathize with you in this room about something terrible that happened to you, there are some people who might take your narrative and flip it around and use your logic and flip that around on you in a negative way and say that, well, that's your fault that that happened to you because you didn't take personal responsibility for who you were associated with um, and who you decided to have personal relations with that led to a negative outcome. Um, so essentially putting her in the place of responsibility for something that many of us who operate in social justice circles, we know that that's not you know, her fault. We know she's not to blame with that. We know that there are oppressive systems at play that led to what happened to her. Um, but I warned her that in the same way that you ask folks to take personal responsibility for their actions, someone who wanted to do you harm, um, someone who wanted to try to personally attack you, someone who wanted to try to really undercut you, 
could take that narrative, that very personal narrative you just said and turn it around on you to say that you're whining, you're complaining, you're leaning into a victimhood narrative and that you needed to take personal responsibility for what happened to you. And once I shared that with her, she started crying. She legitimately on the app started to cry. And that's where I said, oh, no, 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 no. We are not going to engage in the white tears here. That's not what we're going to do. I, like I said, I told her I empathize with you and what happened to you, I would not wish on anyone and it's terrible and I empathize. I'm just trying to lay out for you how the same argument that you made for other people, someone else could do that to you and it's going to be really awful if they tried to do that to you. Um, And so in doing this, there was a huge uproar when I mentioned the white tears. I think everything was fine until I got to the white tears part and her crying. Um, Once I mentioned that, you know, and not wanting that to derail the conversation we were having, all hell broke loose. Um, Myself, as well as other black and brown people who also recognized the white tears and who also recognized that what was about to happen in that space was about to be problematic. All of us got removed from the room um, by the moderators of the room um, because they felt like we were personally attacking this person. Um, And so I say this as an example of what happens in spaces, our work spaces every single day. What happened to me is very common, that when we challenge white people to their words or their actions or their implicit bias, when we really push back hard on them, they tend to lean into either guilt or fragility or rage as a way to deflect from having to take responsibility for their words or actions and having to sit with the cognitive dissonance that you're pushing them to have to really look at um, and pushing them to lean out of their comfort zone and really go into their learning edges and do some really introspective thinking about what did I just say? What did I just do? What harm may I have just caused? And do I need to check myself here? Um, And so I want to take a moment to define these different forms of whiteness and how it shows up and how it derails conversations and why it's problematic and what we can do to move past it. So first is white fragility, right? And the example I just gave about Clubhouse is a prime example of this. Um, It tends to be white women in their tears um, and them crying um, about something, whatever the case may be. And the entire conversation about the microaggression or microinvalidation gets derailed because this one person is crying. And in my experience, it's never even, okay, let's take a moment, let this person catch their breath, and then we'll come back and deal with the other issue at hand. This usually has a tendency to stop the conversation period. And the issue that the black or brown person was trying to bring up in the first place before the tears became an issue is completely forgotten about and is never discussed again. Um, And I feel that that's because they don't want to enter that space again of having to push someone out of their comfort zone into their learning edge. They would rather protect that person's comfort than do what's necessary to engage in true equitable spaces and what it takes to create equitable spaces. The next form of white privilege I want to talk about is white guilt. Um, White guilt shows up in the person who understands systemic oppression They understand the weight of the history of what white people as a whole have done to black and brown people in this country and the atrocities of it, but they have a tendency to really personalize it to themselves. And so instead of saying, 
that was wrong. Those actions of our forefathers was wrong. And we have to take responsibility and do something about that. They tend to lean into the space of, I'm a horrible person. I'm a bad person. I should feel guilty because of what people before me have done. And that guilt stops them from being able to engage in meaningful discussions because they feel as though they are not able to separate themselves personally and their words or actions from the atrocities of the people that have come before them. Um, And so it creates this barrier for them from being able to do meaningful work and lean into genuine allyship. And they get stuck um, in this place of of guilt that is not helpful to themselves because it makes them feel terrible. Um, But it certainly isn't helpful for black and brown people in terms of moving the needle forward. The third form of white privilege that I want to talk about is white rage. Um, This can show up in white men and women, but in my experience, it mostly shows up in white men. Um, And this tends to come in the form of you're oppressing me, you're taking my freedom of speech, you're trying to politically correct police me, any number of narratives of white men feeling like they're being silenced because you, or black or brown people, I should say, are trying to make them understand the weight and the consequence of systemic racism on black and brown people in the spaces in which we live and work. The most drastic form of white rage is something that we've unfortunately recently seen. Um, And I will point you to what happened at the Capitol on January 6th. That is a very extreme form of what white rage looks like and how far white people, specifically white males, are willing to go in order to preserve the white male supremacist order in the United States. Um, granted, oftentimes in our smaller spaces, it doesn't look quite like that because that's definitely an extreme example. But if you want a quick hit point to example of how white rage can spill over into complete and total chaos, and in some cases can lead to death, what happened at the Capitol on January 6th is an excellent example of that because many of these people feel as though their world as they know it as the United States is changing in a way that challenges their white supremacy and for them to hold on to it, they will do what they feel is necessary, even if it means literally storming the Capitol. Last but not least, um, I want to talk about white complacency. And in my experience, I find that of out of all of these different forms of white privilege that show up in our spaces, white complacency is probably the most common and it's probably where most white people fall into. This is the person who, again, they most of the time they recognize and they understand systemic racism. They get that piece. They understand it's a problem. But to them, they feel like if I'm not marching with the KKK and I'm not with the people who stormed the Capitol and I am not running around using the N-word, then that's good enough. I don't really have to do anything else because I'm not actively doing those horrific things. So I don't really have to do anything else. They're not really interested in pushing past their own comfort zones of doing the work that's required to dismantle white supremacy um, and to truly create an equitable environment. And an example where 
I see this show up most often um, is those who say they're allies, but really are more so performative allies um, and sit in a place of white complacency because they know it's convenient for them. So for example, say you're in a meeting and you're having a discussion and a black or brown person says something about, you know, a micro invalidation that just happened. And everyone's quiet. Everyone's in that awkward silent space and looking at each other like, well, who's going to say something next and who's going to address that? And then the person who's facilitating the meeting ultimately pivots to something else to try to avoid the discomfort that goes along with having the conversation of what the black or brown person just pointed out was problematic. And after the meeting's over, this particular white person comes up to you and says, Oh my goodness, that was terrible. I can't believe that so-and-so said that to you. I'm here for you if you need to talk. That person who comes up to you and wants to show this quote-unquote solidarity with you, um, when in reality, what you needed them to do was to say that at the meeting, (laughs) what you needed them to do was to stand in substantive allyship, not performative allyship, um, and say what they're saying to you in private, out loud to everybody in that room, um, and show up for you in a way that is definitely not white saviorism, which is not speaking for you, but speaking in solidarity with you by saying, you know what, I acknowledge that that happened as well. It makes me uncomfortable and I really do think it's something we need to talk about. The person who sits in white complacency is the person who does not want to really go to that next step of really challenging themselves to do that substantive allyship work because they know that there's a potential cost to doing that. And again, they would rather protect their comfort than they would do the work of dismantling oppressive systems and challenging microaggressions and implicit bias at the interpersonal level when they see it happen. No matter what form you're talking about, whether it's white guilt, white complacency, white fragility, or white rage, the common denominator between all of these things is that they center whiteness at the expense of black and brown people. Okay, so we are still talking about maintaining white comfort at the expense of implicit bias, microaggressions, systemic systems that are at play that are creating inequitable environments, we are still centering white comfort and their need to not be pushed out of their comfort zone into their learning edges and to sit with some cognitive dissonance at the expense of black and brown people who have to sit in discomfort every single day because we as black and brown people know that we are not able to show up in our workspaces or in spaces where we do work in our, or where we do work or where we do uh, volunteer work, if you will, that are predominantly white. We know we cannot show up authentically as ourselves in those spaces. And so we are constantly uncomfortable. We are constantly trying to fit a mold that doesn't necessarily work for us, but we do it because we know it's necessary for our survival, right? And if white people truly want to do the work of equity, if they're serious about not being a performative ally, but being a substantive ally, they need to get comfortable with the discomfort of one challenging their peers when they see one of these forms of white privilege rear its ugly head. Okay, that's number one. And number two, they need to get comfortable with sitting in the discomfort and sitting in their learning edges and sitting in that cognitive dissonance long enough to get to solutions that actually work for everybody involved and to truly create equitable spaces where black and brown people are not constantly coming in and out like it's a revolving door. 
we have to remember that white supremacy never sleeps and neither can we. This is an ongoing struggle. This is an ongoing battle. And it's something that we have to work at every single day. We are not going to dismantle over 400, 500 years of racism in the United States by not being diligent and not staying on top of it and not being vocal and not pushing ourselves to do the work. We have to be okay with pushing ourselves, especially white people have to be okay with pushing themselves. Otherwise, we are not going to be able to get to a society that feels like it truly belongs to everyone. And so with that, I will share that if you are interested in more content, if you're interested in learning more um, about how to dismantle white privilege systems in our society, there are new videos and podcasts that are released every Tuesday. Um, So make sure you subscribe to the podcast and you subscribe to the YouTube channel to get notifications so that you can learn more information to take back to your organizations um, so that you can create the spaces that you want to see that centers equity for everybody.